The act of parenting draws back a curtain. Whatever priorities are at play on the stage of one's heart come suddenly into view during the training and discipline of a child. The what, and especially the why and the how of punishment, pull away the velvet and reveal quickly the character of a mother or father. This is a story about the sometimes gut-wrenching work of fathering. It's a story about jealousy and revenge and the cunning power of sin. And it's a story about what we owe to each other and what happens when we open the door to the demon crouching outside. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Topsoil splits as a stone spade plunges into the earth, severing thorn and thistle. It strikes again and again, tracing a line that runs parallel to the line beside it. Sweat runs down a bronze neck, falls into the furrowed soil. The farmer smiles as the seeds rattle in his pouch, the wonder of the ground yielding its strength to him. He'll never stop enjoying that. Does he hear his father's voice inside his head? Does it play again every time he's plowing a line, embedded there since those first lessons decades ago? That's right. Use your whole body. Strike and move. Strike and move. Very good, Cain. You'll make a fine keeper of the ground. Cain smiles as a tear gathers in his eye, perhaps, at the warm echo of those early days. His mother would laugh if she saw him misty-eyed at a simple memory. My first son, born with so many feelings, welling up like spring water. She said that kind of thing to him. How many times? Cain looks around at the fields and homes stretching to the left and right along the river, his home one of several on the outskirts of the garden that was the home of his parents for a time. He loves this place. In the distance, maybe, Eve sits braiding a flower crown from clover blossoms. Oranges are harder to find out here. While Adam lashes together the pieces of a broken tool. Further away, their second-born, Abel, calling out to his sheep, smiling as they gather at the sound of his voice. In the other direction, more siblings, an entire clan, a hamlet, essentially. And more of Eve's children, even further afield. Some, it seems, have moved on from this place and struck out to make distant homes, to explore Yahweh's world. How long ago did they leave 
How old is Cain at this moment? Or Adam? Those who follow will ask these questions, but will have to make do with a good bit of mystery, due in part to the nascent chronology at play during these years, during this age of expansive timelines where lives played out on a different scale, as if this newly constructed thing called time were still settling, congealing, solidifying. Adam, for instance, will live 930 years, though not all of his children will enjoy a similar longevity. This much is clear. Standing in the field on this day, wiping the sweat from his brow, Cain is grown. His brother Abel is grown. And though they have so very much in common, the two siblings' differences are sliding into focus. Cain lays an offering at the altar. The first one, perhaps, he's ever been responsible for on his own. Taught by his father and his mother to worship and told by Yahweh to bring a sacrifice, he piles the products of his time in the fields. Pomegranates or perfectly ripe figs or blushing apples, another fruit perhaps, or, or newly harvested grain, or all of these and more. And then Cain watches as his brother carries pieces of a firstborn lamb to the stone, a crimson leg wrapped in white fat, a rack of ribs, a basin of blood, a coveted lump of fatty tissue, and then more of each. And more. Is he bringing every firstborn animal? Somehow the two offerings, Cain's and Abel's, look different next to one another on the altar. But how exactly do they differ? Is it sheer volume? Perhaps. Perhaps not. Is it the quality of the sacrifices? One an actual sacrifice, the other more cast-offs? Or maybe the glaring difference can only be seen by the piercing eyes of deity. The contrast lies not in the oblations themselves, but in the metaphysical residue left on them by the worshippers. One is covered in gratitude and wonder, the other smeared with pretense and self-conceit. Yahweh frowns and smiles all at once, and then speaks. Cain's face falls, betraying first chagrin and then indignation. Yahweh disapproves of his sacrifice, and, oh, Abel's, Abel's has found favor. Cain secretly fumes, but there are no secrets with the Creator. Why are you angry? Is Cain surprised by this direct address from deity? Or do exchanges like this happen often? Whether or not Yahweh's words startle him, Cain does not offer a response. Why is your face downcast? 
no answer again. Or perhaps no time for one. Yahweh continues, If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? In other words, my son, this is not an unsolvable problem. Let's not pretend things are worse or more complicated than they are. But Cain's heart is roiling. Those emotions of his surging from the depths of him, tied so often to circumstance, powerful like floodwaters, violent almost. The first son of Adam refuses to speak. And so Yahweh does again. There is something Cain is not seeing, something he needs to know. But if you do not do what is right, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Images of slithering serpents and juice-stained lips and lifeless bulls and a cracked cosmos and flaming swords flash in the mind of father, son, and spirit. The ache of a great divorce, the tyranny of death. Sin is crouching at the door, and it is hungry for you, Cain. But you must rule over it. What does Cain's face say now? Abel looks into the eyes of his older brother. Why does he want to talk to me about this? What does my worship have to do with... But Abel's confusion seems only to exacerbate things. Cain spits as he exclaims, his hands waving and pointing, chest bowed, head shaking, lungs puffing dismissive exhalations, shoulders oscillating between confrontation and departure. Abel listens, tries to speak, shakes his head, sighs, raises his palms to the sky. A few more words from Cain, a final shake of his head. He turns then and walks away. If Abel calls after him, Cain ignores it. Later that day, or the next day, or a week after that, the two men find themselves in a field together. Did Abel call this meeting, an attempt to reconcile? Did Cain summon Abel, I want to set things right? Or is this a chance encounter? an inevitable overlap in their goings-on. Whatever its cause, the effects of this particular intersection will be felt for millennia. They talk again, or they don't. In his hand, Cain holds a stone, or a flint blade, or, or maybe he's realized his own hands can do the job. He looks at his brother, and his mind swims. The emotions will not stop. The crouching demon's muscles flex in anticipation. And then... Finally, motion gives way to stillness. Noise settles into silence. Life is stolen by death. Breathing heavy, Cain stares as his brother's blood spills from the wound and soaks into the newborn earth. Lambs bleat in the distance. 
and the world's first murderer turns his attention to disposing of the body. Where is Abel, your brother? Cain freezes mid-swing, his knuckles turning white as he grasps the spade handle, his heart quickening at the sound of his voice and this question. The dark well inside him seethes at the prompting. Finally, Cain speaks to Yahweh. I don't know. His eyes flick toward the hole, perhaps. Abel's now unkept flocks looming in the distance. He swings the spade at the soil and sniffs, calling back over his shoulder, Am I my brother's keeper? What have you done? It's not an information-seeking question but an exclamation of aching incredulity and an offer, a moment of introspection for Cain to enter, wherein he might see, might comprehend the weight. Two Yahweh's words echo across time, aligning perfectly and tragically with a question asked years ago inside the garden. Cain is focused now, surely. He knows that story. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Cain cannot hear this noise, of course, but Yahweh, author of life and maker of blood and lover of Abel, Yahweh can hear the blood screeching wailing, its banshee scream bringing tears to his eyes as the sound ricochets through his pounding head. How do you make your child understand the seriousness of what they've done? Now, you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Cain's eyes are wider now. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Trembling now, Cain looks to the heavens. No, no, my punishment is too great to bear. You have driven me from the face of the ground. I'll have to hide from your face, and I'll be a vagabond. Whoever finds me will will kill me. How easy it is to imagine in others the evil that resides in you. Yahweh listens as Cain speaks. Sees him. Hears him. And finally opens his mouth once more. Whoever kills Cain, Yahweh announces, will suffer vengeance seven times over. The murderer blinks. 
did he expect the Almighty Creator, the judge of all things, the father of Abel, to be merciful like this, to protect him, even in the wake of his unflinching sin? Expect? That's certainly the wrong word. But when Cain was a little boy, when he'd lay on his back in the quiet of bedtime as his mother stroked his hair to calm him down, she'd tell him stories, surely. Stories about how things were in the early days. Waking up to see his dad. The first time she made a flower crown and danced and felt Yahweh's smile. The walks the three of them would take in the cool of the day. Cain would ooh and ah as his mother spoke of a place that was like this place, but more, safer, freer, more alive. More alive even than my wellspring? He'd exclaim, perhaps, as he pointed to his little heart. She'd laugh. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Eve told her little boy about the disobedience as well, about the fruit and the tears and the curse. But she didn't stop there. She told Cain, surely she told him a hundred times, about the par, the bull Yahweh sacrificed for her and for Adam, the way he tanned the hide and dressed them in protective clothes so much better than what they had made for themselves. His mercies are new every morning, Cain. She'd say things like that. And so here, now, with Abel's blood on his hands and his own curse hanging in the air and the sheer weight of the thought of being exiled and so, so vulnerable, Cain hears those words from Yahweh, whoever kills Cain, will suffer vengeance seven times over. A law for the whole world made just for him. And though this mercy isn't expected, it certainly is not foreign. But then Yahweh touches Cain's skin, draws on him somehow a mark to function as a sign to anyone who encounters him. Something to keep them from striking him. Protective clothes. Even for him. There are no roads. Not yet. And so Cain follows the rising sun east, away from his home, away from his family, further away from the garden. When this story is written, it will say that Cain settled in the land of Nod. But Nod will simply be the Hebrew word for wander, and so there likely isn't much settling at all. The storyteller will also say that Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh when he moved away. 
Does this mean that Cain leaves Yahweh entirely as he travels east, or simply that he leaves the edgelands of Eden? Only Yahweh knows. In time, Cain and his wife conceive. They have a little boy and name him Enoch. It means trained or disciplined. Perhaps a resolution toward generational progress? Eventually, they do settle, for a time at least, and Cain heads up the building of a city, alongside his scattered siblings and their offspring. He names the city Enoch as well. This discipline must encompass them all if they are to survive each other. And when Cain's little boy, or his little grandson, perhaps, goes to bed, Cain surely tells him the stories. Stories about how things were in the early days. Hopefully, he tells the child about the disobedience as well. His disobedience. And hopefully, he doesn't stop there. The question of Cain's post-crime, post-sentence faith will be pondered by generation after generation. They will wonder if he ever managed to channel that bubbling spring, if he ever saw and accepted the kindness of his God. I'll have to hide from your face. Somewhere out there in the east, does Cain ever realize those were his words, not Yahweh's? Does Cain learn to see himself as the keeper of his wife and son, of the city he founded? And what about Eve and Adam, parents of the man who was taken, the boy of theirs with the beautiful heart? How will they grieve? Will they find it within themselves to forgive their murderous son? Or better, will they find such miraculous grace outside of themselves in him? As this first pair douses the fire each night and heads into bed, do they look out to the horizon, Eve with her head on Adam's shoulder, Adam with his head on hers, and watch the glow of the angel's sword flickering at the entrance to the garden. They couldn't bring themselves to settle out of eyeshot. Did that make Yahweh smile, sad and glad all at once? Surely it did. Punishment is always intended to enable relationship, not to sever it. That's how it works with a good father. So many questions as this new earth takes shape. But even here, even now, one certainty stands, pointing like a stone monolith down the river of time, deceptively small given its eternal significance. It's an egg. Twelve one-hundredths of a millimeter in diameter 
nucleus and cytoplasm and membrane all wrapped up with extravagant promise, like, like a seed. The ovum rests now inside of Eve's body. And with this cell, along with a single cell from Adam, Yahweh will create a baby named Seth. From this baby, another baby will come. He'll wriggle and squirm in his makeshift manger bed, redemption in his eyes and truth on his tiny pink tongue. He will call himself the Son of Man, deity enfleshed, an astonishing sibling of all humanity, and he, he will be his brother's keeper. His sisters, too. He will love them and feed them and eventually lead all who will follow back to where it all began. The garden remade and lit not by the flickering blade of a boundary sword, but by the face of Yahweh, only and forever smiling. Abel will be there. And maybe, by the grace of God, so will Cain. Justin here. I hope the guide and the reaper blessed you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear some behind the scenes stuff about this episode and others, make sure you're subscribed to the latest. It's a free email I send out once every couple of weeks to the Holy Ghost Stories family. It's full of interesting bits and bobs about the text or my storytelling choices or the world these people were living in. I also share the other stuff I'm working on um, and things I've come across that I think you'd like. Also, first looks at what's coming next for Holy Ghost Stories. You can sign up at holyghoststories.org or just click the link in the show notes. Hey, so it's December 17th as I'm recording this, and I just wanted to take a second at the end of this third year of Holy Ghost Stories to say thank you to those of you who give every month over on Patreon as patrons of this work. I could not do this without you, and every single time you give 10 or 25 or 50 or $100, I'm telling you, it matters. By the grace of God, uh, the work you're enabling isn't just blessing you, but so many others around the world. Uh, people of faith who are meeting God in exciting new ways in these stories. People without faith who find themselves on sort of an accidental blind date with the divine as they enter these moments from scripture. Uh, people who know these stories backwards and forwards and are delighted to examine them again. And people who are hearing most of these stories for the very first time. It's good work we're up to. And I'm really grateful for the way so many of you have partnered with me to do it. Patreon has different levels of support, and so I've named the levels. We've got anecdotalists and storytellers and raconteurs. I'm grateful for every single one of you, and we're all grateful to the raconteurs who give at the highest tier every month. So here's to you guys. 
Easton, Sean, Joey at Creation of Revelation, Ryan and Kelly, Miranda, Amanda, Carrie Joy, John, Joshua, David, Teresa, Daniel, Deborah, Terry, Rachel, Valerie, Travis, Steve, Shannon, Kara, Don, John, Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Daniel, Stephanie, Helen, Hildy, Debbie, Susan, Rick, Stephanie, Derek, Mindy, Maddie, Jody, Jonathan, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Mark, Stephen, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie. Thanks for being your brother's keeper. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios, manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt, research, writing, narration, and sound editing by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time.